0: If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read down through verse 20 together this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me if you did not bring a copy of the scriptures with you this morning uh, as we read it together. But Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read down through verse 20. Paul writes these words He says, He, or Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. Earlier this week in a conversation around the dinner table with my family, I was once again reminded of just the harsh, cruel world in which we live. Last week, my daughter on the way to school had asked me a question about segregation because she was reading a book that was in, in a fictional work that was set in the South in the period of Jim Crow laws in which the doctrine of the land was separate but equal. So she was asking me about why people were separated or discriminated against just because of the color of their skin. And this is literally as like we're pulling up to the drop-off line at school. And so I'm like, I've got a ton of time to explain this to you, right? And so um, I essentially said, Maybe the simple answer is Sin. I said, but we will talk about it more when we have a little bit more time together to visit about that. And so, this past Monday night, in light of the sermon that I preached last weekend on the image of God in all people, I brought that up around our dinner table again. And just we talked about uh, the realities of that. Um, And during the course of that conversation, I asked both of my children, I said, have you ever seen anybody treated differently in your school because of what they look like? And what I heard shook me as my daughter, who's in fourth grade, uh, proceeded to tell me about a friend of hers. Uh, this friend lives a couple of houses down from us up on the upside of the retaining wall in the, our backyard. She's been to our house a couple of times to play. She's been to other houses on our street to play. Um, and she was telling me this, this friend also happens to be black. And as she was telling me the story, she said there are times on the playground where two of her classmates, um, which happened to be... Young white boys will walk by while they're playing and they will whisper just loud enough for her and her friend to hear, but not loud enough for anybody else to hear a racial slur which ought not be spoken. In fourth grade, these are nine and ten-year-old kids. And she said at times her friend will be in tears because of the way that she's treated by her peers in her classes. Now, we hear stories like that, and we think, well, that's just an isolated incident, but is it? Church, is it? When my friend and brother and fellow pastor, Shannon Thomas, moved in this community to plant Rockwall Friendship Baptist Church, and listen, he'd shared this story with me privately previously, and I didn't feel like I had license to share it until I heard him share it last week in his sermon, but he told me that whenever they moved here to plant Rockwell Friendship Baptist Church, he got a letter, not at his church office and not at the building where the church met, but at his own home where his family lived from the Rockwall County chapter of the KKK, letting them, him know that they were watching. That they had their eyes on him. And just, just so we're clear on who the, who the KKK are, right? Our goal from the Loyal Knights to the KKK website, our goal is to help restore America to a white Christian nation founded on God's Word, This does not mean that we want to see anything bad happen to the darker races. We simply want to live separate from them as God intended. And they cite scripture to support their fallacy. I'll continue the quote. It is a simple fact that whenever these races try to integrate themselves into white society, that society is damaged immensely, perhaps even destroyed altogether, end quote. One of the most active chapters of the KKK in our nation is found in Quinlan, Texas, just 15 minutes to our east, the Texas Rebel Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, And in a chat room, a forum, a thread of conversations taking place there online, they say this, that they're an organization that stands for the preservation, protection, and advancement of the white Christian race. And then here's their prayer. Oh God, bless the Klansmen, that they may fight to keep America free from the ungodly things forevermore, and their race as pure as the lily of the valley. God bless the clansmen, his home, his family, and his country. Above all, God bless those who hate the clan, for they know not what they do with their brainwashed minds. Amen. That's who sent him a letter when he moved here to plant a church. Is it an isolated incident when black teens in our community are in therapy for the way they're treated in their schools by their peers? Is it an isolated incident when in this church, Several years ago, I had a member accuse me of hiring two staff members just because they were black. Is it an isolated incident when I stood to preach in this church from Amos 2-7 in the summer of 2018 on trampling the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth and turning aside the way of the afflicted? And after I read the text and said that we were going to talk about racism, one family got up and walked out before ever hearing another word that I had to say. Following the same sermon, I had another church member approach me and ask, what did you have to go and do that for? Is it an isolated incident when less than a year ago, following the death of George Floyd, I read a statement released by the SBC president, J.D. Greer, and president of New Orleans Seminary, Chuck Kelly, that mourned with those who mourned and recognized the unique grief experienced by our fellow citizens of color because of the historic injustices committed against them in our country? It grieved the misuse of force while at the same time thanking God for officers that uphold justice with dignity and integrity. It called for any inequitable distributions of justice to come to an end and rooted that call in the biblical view of the divine image, biblical condemnations of the abuse and misuse of authority, and in Jesus' own call to love and labor for our neighbor. It called Christians to use their voices when quote, brothers and sisters, friends and or people we seek to win for Christ are mistreated, abused, or killed unnecessarily." End quote. The following week, I preached a sermon the next text up in the Gospel of Mark. It happened to be the very next text on the leaven of the Pharisees who neglected the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And I called us as a church to consider What of that leaven might be left in our lives? The next week, I set up breakfasts, lunches, and meetings with people in homes and restaurants and parks with people I thought would have been most affected by what had taken place and the fallout that ensued from it. And during one of those meetings, I was accused of being a heretic and false teacher for reading that statement and saying what I had said about the corrosive effects of injustice. In fact, in that conversation, I heard these words, I, and I quote, I tell people that this is the way it is, and if they don't like it, they can leave. Is it an isolated incident when last year, as protests assembled in Rockwall along Highway 66, neighbors came out grabbing their kids to bring them inside, not because there were protesters on Highway 66, but because the blacks were marching down Highway 66. Is it an isolated incident? And I could tell you story after story after story after story. But we have a text to get to. See, church, I I think these attitudes are present and active in our community. And if the church remains silent, if the church remains silent, or worse, denies and rails against the real lived experience of our darker skinned brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God as we are, then we perpetuate the sin and foolishness of the moderate white church in the midst of the civil rights movement. So what can we say about this very real and present issue in our community from this text? This beautiful hymn in Colossians chapter 1 in which the Apostle Paul celebrates Jesus as our Savior. He celebrates the supremacy of Christ. And here's what he teaches us in this text, that Jesus is sovereign and supreme over all. Let me see if I can make it plain for you this morning. Jesus is king of the hill. You remember playing that game as a kid? You played king of the hill, right? To play king of the hill, you needed a hill, right? Or a dirt pile or a rock pile or any other elevated surface. Okay? Anything upon which somebody else could stand on top of. And the whole point of the game... Okay? was to try to ascend to the top of the hill and try and grab who's ever on top of the hill and pull them down, okay? Or push them off, right? And so over the course of sometimes hours of playing outside as kids, because when I was young, right, Atari was about all we had, all right? wasn't as exciting. And so we played for hours outside as kids, playing King of the Hill, right? And the whole point was to become King of the Hill, to be the one on top, the one who stood above everyone else, the one to whom everyone else had to answer, and you were constantly trying to push the other off or pull them down. And so by the end of the game, right, you were full of dirt, you were full of mud, you had scrapes and bruises on your body, right? Not because you'd been abused, but because you'd been playing King of the Hill, and in Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, whenever the psalmist writes about the nations raging against God, he says this. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, the psalmist says, God has a king of the hill. And it is His one and only Son. His only begotten who has been set as King of the hill. And in this particular text, Jesus is held up as the King of the hill, as sovereign and supreme over all. And there are eight stunningly beautiful truths about Jesus that I want you to see this morning from this passage that show us that He is indeed the King of the hill. First one is this. Jesus is the definitive Picture of God. In verse 15 we read, He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Which means this, church. That means you don't have to grasp at theories or concepts about the nature of God, about the character of God, about what God is like, or about who God loves. Because of Jesus. He's the definitive picture of God. The person of God in concrete reality. Second, Jesus has authority over all creation. In verse 15, the latter part of verse 15, we're told that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, that does not mean that he was the first created being in all creation. Like, he was God's, the, God the Father's first work that he brought into existence. The Bible affirms the eternality of the Son, that he's always existed and will always exist. But that language, firstborn over all creation, describes this, that one who possesses all the rights, privileges, and authority of the firstborn, because the firstborn son in the ancient world had authority over the father's estate. And that's Jesus. He possesses authority over everything that has, does, and ever will exist. That's why the author of, of uh, that's why Paul says in Philippians that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father His authority over all creation number three Jesus is the source the agent and the goal of all creation Look in verse sixteen there are these there are these profound prepositions right. You're like, there you go with that English stuff again. Right, profound prepositions of by and through and for. Everything was made by Jesus. Everything was made through Jesus. Everything was made for Jesus. Let me see if I can put it plain to you. Jesus is the architect, the contractor, and the homeowner when it comes to creation. Right, he's the one that designed everything, drew out the blueprints for where the bathroom was gonna be, where the kitchen island was gonna be situated, how the where the cabinets were gonna go in the kitchen, right? How the living room was gonna set up to be able to, to be able to work with the rest of the flow of the house and the open content, all those kinds. He designed it. But he was also the contractor, the one who put concrete to the ground and board to board and tile upon floors and walls. But He was also the one that it was built for. The homeowner Himself. Jesus is the agent, source, and goal of all creation. Number four, Jesus sustains all things. Jesus is the one who is holding all things together. He is like the divine glue that holds everything in its proper place. All natural things. Listen, every heartbeat... Every flutter of an eyelash or an eyelid, every rustle of every blade of grass as the wind passes over it, every breath that you breathe is sustained by the power of the risen Son of God. As Paul says elsewhere in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, as he's speaking to the men of Athens, he says, in Him, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. To all things natural, but all things spiritual. See, while the whole world appears that it's in chaos and disintegrating, Jesus is holding all things together. There's one crisis after another may crash on the shore of your life like the waves of a tsunami, and yet Jesus sustains by his grace and holds all things together. Number five, Jesus is the head of the church. The readers in Colossae, Paul's original audience, would have understood the head as the governing member of the body, that which ruled over and provided for the body. Now the relevance for them was profound, because over and against what was going on in Colossae, you had all these false teachers who were saying, if you want real spiritual vitality, you need Jesus plus this, or you need Jesus in addition to that. In other words, real spiritual vitality was found someplace other than in Jesus and Jesus alone. But Paul says no, real spiritual vitality comes from Jesus who is the governing member and source of life for his body, the church. So Jesus is not head of the church like the Queen Mother is head of England. Right? With a representative authority, but Jesus has actual authority in His church. He's the head of the church. Church Number six, Jesus takes first place by His virtue of His resurrection. Paul affirms that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That He is the first to be resurrected. And His resurrection is a validation of His identity as God. And the purpose of validating his identity as God is that through the resurrection was that everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. That word preeminent literally means this, to have the first seat, to take the first place, to have the place of primacy. Let me ask you a question, church. Who has first place in your heart? Who has first place in your vision for your family? Who has first place in your vision for what this church would be? In everything He might be preeminent. Number seven, Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. In verse 19 we read, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now what Paul is not saying is that you see in Jesus you see all of God because the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. And the Son is not the Spirit and the Spirit is not the Son. There are three persons in one essence, but what Paul is saying is this, is that what makes God God, His divine essence, is seen, the fullness of it is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, the King that God has set on His holy hill, His only begotten. And then, number eight, Jesus is our reconciler and peacemaker. See, church, we were at war with God. At war. In verse 20, Paul says that the way Jesus, what Jesus does is he makes peace by the blood of his cross. To say that Jesus was making peace for us means that we're not born in a position of spiritual neutrality, but spiritual hostility. In other words, by nature, we despise God. We're not just indifferent towards him, we despise him. We despise his commands. We don't cast off his restraints. We hate him. We believe that his commands are burdensome. We despise anyone who tells us what we can and cannot do, what's good for us and what's bad for us, what we were designed for and what goes against that good design that God created us with. And it puts us in a position of fighting against God and His design in order to fulfill our desires. We were at war. And because we were at war with God, we were estranged, separated, and cut off from Him. Paul says in the text that He reconciled us. That word reconcile means to bring two people back together following separation, division, or estrangement, them being cut off from each other. And because of that hostility that we harbored against God in our sin, we were cut off from Him, separated from Him. See, in the beginning, our first parents enjoyed absolute union with God in the garden. He would come and walk in the cool of the day with them. He would fellowship with them. They would talk to him face to face. And yet, on account of their sin, by following what they felt instead of what God had said, it caused a separation between God and humanity because this holy God could not fellowship with sinful man. But even as God banishes them from the garden and protects them from coming back in and eating of the tree alive so they would live forever in that estranged state from God, which is grace, by the way, even in that, God says, God says, I'll make you a promise. One day there would come one who though his heel would be struck by the serpent, that he would crush the head of the snake. And that One who came to reconcile, to deal with the enmity between us and God and to reconcile our relationship with God is none other than Jesus Christ who makes peace by the blood of His cross. He's our Reconciler and our Peacemaker. He's the incarnate Son of God. He takes first place. He's head of the church. He sustains all things. He's the source, agent, and goal of all creation. He has authority over all creation. And if you want to see God Look at him. Now, if y'all were a shout in church, I'd be rolling in the floor right now. <laughs> right? I mean, this is this is who Paul presents Jesus to be, that he's sovereign and supreme over all. That he has made. He's king of the hill, church. So the question is. How does this speak into our historic sins and present struggles? Now, what I'm about to say shouldn't be controversial, but some of you will take it that way. Alright? It should be celebrated. And here it is. If this is true, if Jesus really is sovereign and supreme over all, then in the church there's room for only one kind of supremacy. Only one kind of supremacy. Now listen, uh-oh, right? Because when I say that, there are some people who respond kind of like my dog does when I let her out in the backyard. Okay, And you got dogs behind us, and you got dogs beside us, and she makes a beeline for that fence. And she runs, and she barks, and she scratches. right? And she's rawr, rawr, trying to get after the people who are on the upside of the retaining wall, the dogs over here on this side, any dogs that are over here on this side. And we have to literally go out there and cut her off. Okay, Because she gets so entranced. And when we bring her back inside, the hair on the back of her neck is just standing up. And anytime some of us hear the word supremacy, that's what happens to us. We can't even laugh at ourselves about it. About to have a panic attack. But the only supremacy that's characterized the church is the supremacy of Christ. Which means this That there is no room for white supremacy and there is no room for black power. I'm going to get it from both sides, all right? I can speak more to one because I've seen it in action. And some of you don't believe me. That's all right. But the, but the white church in America has historically held up and propagated the sin of white supremacy. And this is not revisionist history. Okay? People were taught the inferiority of the black race in churches. Not just in the 1600s. Not just in the 1700s. Not just in the 1800s. In the 1900s, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, as I was graduating high school. And much of it was propagated from this detestable doctrine called the curse of Ham. In Genesis chapter 9, following the rescinding of the flood waters, Noah plants a vineyard, comes out of the boat, plants a vineyard, grows a bunch of grapes, harvests the grapes, right? crushes the grapes, makes some wine, gets drunk, okay, passes out in this tent naked. Right? And one of his sons, named Ham, comes in, sees his father's nakedness, and comes out and says to his other two brothers, Shem and, and, and uh, Japheth, right? come in and see him as well. Come in and see. This is, this is crazy, right? And his new brother, other brothers do come in, but they come in not to see their father's nakedness, but to cover it. So they back up and they lay a clo- clothing on top of their father, when Noah wakes up, and he realizes what his youngest son had done. These are the words that he says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, "Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers." And he also said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth." And let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant as well. Now, listen, because Ham genealogically was the forefather of black, the black race and because of his descendants were cursed to be slaves because of their sin against Noah, some Christians, right? Right? taught this many Christians many white Christians taught that Africans and their descendants are destined to be servants and should accept their status as slaves in fulfillment of biblical prophecy that was a Bible commentator as in the ni- late 1980s and early 1990s uh, who was writing those words just now now this misinterpretation of scripture was was uh, propagated in white evangelical world by the likes of C.I. Schofield in his reference Bible some of you got study Bibles right You got an NIV application study Bible, you got the ESV study Bible, you got, well, there's like a billion study Bibles now. But in his study Bible, C.I. Schofield, a a, a world renowned Bible expositor, in his reference Bible and his notes on Genesis chapter 9, said this about the curse of Ham. He said, A prophetic declaration is made that from Ham will descend an inferior and servile posterity. Another note, a prophetic declaration is made that from Japheth will descend the enlarged races. Government, science, and art, broadly speaking, are now and have been Japhetic, showing that the history is the indisputable record of the exact fulfillment of these declarations. You know what he's saying in that? Japheth's descendants went up into modern-day Turkey and eventually into Europe, and Ham's descendants down into Africa. And he's propagating a doctrine that was taught in churches not just in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, but in the late 20th century. That black people were inferior and destined to slavery and that white people were the source of all culture creating and ruling. This was taught as doctrine. Go read it. And I love the way Dr. Evans, Tony Evans at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship deconstructs this argument with Scripture. He says, never mind, of course, that the Bible says that Canaan, Ham's son, was cursed, not Ham himself. That's only one of Ham's four sons, not all four were cursed. How then could all black people everywhere be cursed? Never mind that the Bible places limitations on curses only three or four generations at most. Never mind that the curse on Canaan and his descendants finds its most obvious fulfillment in the ongoing defeat of Canaan by Israel. Never mind that the descendants of Ham's other sons continue to this day as national peoples in Ethiopia, Egypt, and Libya. And never mind that God says that curses based on disobedience are reversed when people repent and turn again to obedience. This is certainly sufficient to negate the Christian endorsement of the American enslavement of black peoples. And then he says this, Myths, however, do not need facts. They simply need supporters. Go read, go read the Southern Baptists of the early 1900s. Go read the Southern Baptists of the mid 1900s. Go read the, some of the Southern Baptists of the late 1900s who were casting seed, casting seed of these doctrines in their churches. And though many of them later in their lives would repent of that, the seed was still cast. And it affected the way, it affected the way that the church viewed race. In fact, our denomination to which we belong has its roots in that very myth. The Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845 as a coalition of Baptist churches in the South that broke away from the national convention because there was a dispute over whether or not a slaveholder could be commissioned as a missionary to the foreign mission field. And because the larger national convention was wrestling with that thought, the, southern, the churches in the southern portion, the confederacy, said this, which eventually broke away, said this, they said, listen, if you guys don't want to commission slaveholders, then we'll break away from our own convention so that we don't have to go through you any longer and we can commission whoever we want to to the mission field. So they broke away in order to defend the premise of slaveholding as morally legitimate. That's where our roots come from. And it wasn't until 1995, 150 years afterwards, that they issued an apology for that. There is no room for white supremacy in the church, but there's also no room for black power. See, what started as a call for equality in the civil rights movement quickly turned to violent counteraction, oftentimes because of the perceived deferment of the dream of Dr. King. In other words, people just want to keep kicking the can down the road and saying equality is going to come someday. Equality is going to come someday. And there were people like the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers who said, we're tired of waiting for someday. And in that same seedbed rose a movement known as the Black Hebrew Israelites. And the Black Hebrew Israelites exist to this day in large Large uh, cities within our nation. Right? And they'll stand on the street corners and berate passers-by as they walk up and down the streets. They see Christianity as the white man's religion and hold some of the sects within he, black Hebrew Israelites hold certain doctrines that, that would affirm that the, 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 the roles are going to be reversed in heaven. And that black people will be superior and white people will be slaves. And listen, there is no room for that in the church either. And some of you are thinking, well, those, that's like, if you look at a football field, you're talking about the 10-yard the, the, the lines, right? The people on both sides, both ends of that spectrum. Listen, but I want to say something to you this morning that even the other 80 yards in the middle, right, even there, even from 40 to 40, in those 20-yard lines closest to the center of the field, on both sides of that argument, there are still people who are trying to be king of the hill. They're trying to be king of the hill. Because they see the situation as a zero-sum game. You know what that means? That means in order for me to win, you have to lose. In order for you to win, I have to lose. It's a zero-sum game. In other words, if I'm to recognize and acknowledge the generations of racist systems and trauma in our nation that have shaped social structures and church realities even into the present day, and that I've sat silently by while those realities played out, then I have to give up the moral high ground. I can't be king of the hill. On the flip side, if my dark-skinned brother is to recognize and acknowledge that not all of the issues facing him today are the result of historic and systemic racism, but some are the result of personal choices and his own sin, then he has to give up the moral high ground. He can't be king of the hill. And neither side wants to give up the moral high ground. Because both sides want to be king of the hill. Because if either side acknowledges the validity in the other side's positions, enters into the conversation with understanding, and approaches the other person as a whole, not just as a caricature, but as a whole person made in the image of God even as they are, and is willing to recognize past sins, present prejudices, or personal responsibility, then they lose their innocence. And to lose innocence in our culture is to lose power. Shelby Steele, in his book, Content of Our Character, writes this. He says, I think the racial struggle in America has primarily been a struggle for innocence. See, according to Steele, both races understand that to lose innocence is to lose power. And given the way the racial conversation has been framed up and carried out within our nation and within our churches, right? One's innocence depends on the other's guilt. Exclusively. And to maintain, he says this, to maintain innocence, blacks sting whites with guilt, remind them of their racial past, accuse them of new and more subtle forms of racism. And in return, whites try to retrieve their innocence by discrediting blacks and denying their difficulties. For in this denial, he says, and I quote, is, is the denial of their own guilt. He, and so, so listen, in the end, this conversation, if it continues down this trajectory, it leads to an impasse it always leads to an impasse. And you get stuck and withdraw to your own camps, to your own tribes. And what happens is your particular perspective gets reinforced in the echo chamber of social media, of your social media feed, and your neighbors, who all share your particular perspective on these issues. And you're once again reminded how your perspective is superior to the other image bearers who happen to see things differently. And Kevin DeYoung, listen, he describes this impasse so well, so articulately. Listen to what he says. He says, for for whites, it can feel like redemption is always out of reach. If you don't have animus in your heart, you have implicit bias that you can't see. If you haven't personally done anything against black people, other whites have, and you should bear their shame. If you speak out, you should have listened. If you stay quiet, your silence is violence. If you do nothing tangible to counter injustice, that's sinful indifference. Try to take the lead in fixing things. You may want to check your privilege. Your institution shouldn't be all white, but it shouldn't engage in tokenism either. You should celebrate diversity, but without cultural appropriation and any disagreement with the fundamental contours of this conversation is just another manifestation of white fragility. In other words, guilty, guilty, guilty. On the flip side, he says, and for blacks, it must feel like even the barest recognition of the ongoing effects of racism is a bridge too far for most whites. Because whites are often preoccupied with their search for innocence, they fail to muster even meager sympathy or understanding for black pain. And I'll, I'll break quote here for a second and say this, we often fail to recognize the difference between our lived experience and someone else's lived experience. The things that we have encountered and the things that they have encountered. i resume quote, he says, if you want to talk about policing in America, we'll bring up black homicide rates in Chicago. If you want to talk about criminal justice reform, we will mention the black abortion rate. And if that doesn't adequately move the guilt from our shoulders to yours, then we can always talk about our black friends, insist that we are colorblind, or weaponize pull quotes from Thomas Sowell. In other words, guilty, guilty, guilty. And by the way, Thomas Sowell, if you don't know who he is, he's an African-American economist and social theorist who's been very critical of his own race over the years. And I don't know a single, single person of color who appreciates your colorblindness or my color blindness. They want to be seen for how God has made them without being treated differently because of it. But don't you hear it in his words? Both sides are trying to be king of the hill. They're both trying to claim the moral high ground. They're both unwilling to yield the hill. Listen, not to the other, but to Jesus. To Jesus. So what do we do in light of the supremacy of Christ? Let me close with this application. We've got to surrender the hill to Jesus. See, Jesus is the only one with the moral high ground. The only one. It was Jesus who taught us to love our neighbor as ourself. He teaches us who our neighbor is in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anyone that you find in need, that's your neighbor. And then... Jesus goes a step further by saying this is the the greatest love that a man would be willing to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus lays down his life for his friends and his neighbors. The people that he found in need. It was also Jesus who when reviled did not revile in return, but suffered. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. In other words, he didn't retaliate. He didn't respond. He didn't react. He entrusted himself to God. Jesus is the only one with the moral high ground. The only one. So what does it mean then to surrender the hill to Jesus? First of all, it means to recognize other types of supremacy. And listen, church, if we're going to do this, we have to own our collective past. When we surrender the hill to Jesus, we can own our history without despondency, but with hope for the future. When Jesus is king of the hill, we can look back and be deplored. Be floored by the sins of our forefathers who have come before us. But we can look forward with hope for the future. So, can we at least start by saying that the white church got race wrong for 400 years? 400 years. Right? Can we at least start that? Can we at least start by saying that our white fellow image bearers, with more melon, our 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 fellow image bearers with more melanin in their skin, were being lynched all across the South. The white church, white pastors and ministers, white theologians, and white church members refused to engage the issue. But held their tongues. Held their tongues to preserve the peace in their churches, and sometimes. Sometimes, like Saul in the book of Acts, when Stephen and Stone looked on with approval as black bodies hung from trees for all the world to see. Can we at least acknowledge those things? Kevin DeYoung, again, he says, to be clear, there is no comparing the aggregate sins of white people against black people versus the sins of black people against white people. And here's what I believe he's saying. I believe what he's saying here is this, is we cannot use the very biblical truth that we are all sinners in need of God's grace as a means to sidestep the hard work of recognizing the atrocious sins of the past in our nation and in our churches and repenting from any residual corrosive effects that may linger in the present. We've got to own our collective history. But second of all, we've got to call it what it is. See, when we surrender the hill to Jesus, we can own our personal and corporate sins of commission or omission without fear of retribution. When Jesus is king of the hill, when He's got the moral high ground, and He's one who's willing to forgive, even a Steve prayed, He would forgive anything. Then we can own our sins without fear of retribution. Listen, church, you cannot have a culture or a church for that matter in which there is 345 years of legal racial hierarchy that sees one race as less than human, right? Three-fifths doctrine in its day. And turn all that around in 57 years by somebody signing a law into being without there being corrosive residue left in people and processes. Right? If you left a piece of metal sitting outside in the elements for years... Without any protection, what's going to happen? It's going to begin to corrode. And you can't just come along with a can of spray paint and spray some paint over top of that piece of metal and expect that there's not corrosive effects still underneath. Now, I'm not saying... Let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everything is systemic racism. But I am saying there is a biblical category for it and we must reckon with that. In Psalm chapter 94, verse 20 the psalmist is asking God this question. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. In other words, God can, can wicked rulers who are governing people, can they be on your side? Can they be allied with you? Can they be carrying out your will whenever they create laws that frame up injustice for people? Right. That is a, there's a biblical category for it. That we must reckon with. So we got to recognize it. Second of all, we got to repent from any other supremacy. Surrendering the hill to Jesus always involves repentance. Always, in every area of our lives, right? Now, some of you are like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Right? How can I repent from something I never did? Right? I didn't lynch somebody. Okay, I didn't own anyone. How can I repent from something I never did? And then we go to a text like Ezekiel chapter 18 that says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor will the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wickedness shall be upon himself. In other words, personal responsibility and culpability for my own personal transgressions. And the Bible says, yes! Yes! And then you read text like Leviticus chapter. 26 verses 40 to 42, "But if they confess their iniquity, God speaking to Israel, and the iniquity of their fathers, in their treachery that they committed against me, and also walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them, then I will remember my covenant. God says to the people, He says, "Listen, they ought to come and confess their iniquity, their own personal iniquity." He says, "But they need to confess the iniquity of their fathers as well, because the iniquity of their fathers led me to walk. Con- they were walking contrary to me, and so I walked contrary to them. So, what, what do you, how do you reconcile those two things, right? How do you make sense of those two things? And I believe the pastor of the church at Chantilly, the historic First Presbyterian Church of Montgomery, Alabama, but God, by the name, read the pace. I think he says it well. He says the way out of apparent contradiction here is found in the details associated with the words "visit" and "iniquity." One of three words used for sin in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated "iniquity" is used to express sin with its results, right? The things that happen on account of the actions that we commit. He says we're most familiar with the result of culpability, like our own personal responsibility. Sin does make us culpable before God, accountable to Him for our rebellion against His law. He says yet there is another result of sin, one that is as common as culpability but not often focused on. In addition to culpability, sin also results in corruption. This is the spiritual pollution, the contamination factor attached to sin. It spiritually infects others. He says a portion of the Mosaic ceremonial law dealt with that. He said when the high priest on the Day of Atonement confessed the sins over the goat, sent it out into the wilderness, it was to take away the iniquities of the people, the results that came on account of their sin. to Take them away. He says, he goes on to say, he says, one of the reasons for church discipline is to protect other members of the congregation from the corruption of the offending member's sin. Right? So you're not validating people who are living in open, willful rebellion against God. Right? And so you discipline those members in order that their sin might not be corrupting the rest of the congregation or corroding the rest of the congregation. He says this corruption of sin is so pervasive that there's nothing that it hasn't touched. He says in Isaiah chapter 64, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. He says, it's quite simple. God gives to the descendants of those in covenant with Him not the culpability for their forefathers' sins, not the personal responsibility to repent from those things, but the corruption that results from it carries forward generation after generation. He says, if the culpability result of sin is personal, it only attaches to the sinning individual, then the corruption result of sin is corporate. It attaches to those in covenant relationship with the sinning individual whenever it was condoned generation after generation after generation we cannot stand back and say it has not to some degree affected us in the way that we see things third and finally we got to recognize we got to repent we have to rejoice as well rejoice in jesus supremacy See, if we yield the hill to Jesus and we stop trying to pull each other down, only then can we move forward. Kevin DeYoung again. He says, there will be no moving forward in these matters if every step forward for one side is a step back for the other. We have a common ancestor in Adam and if believers, we have a common Savior in Christ. Our way forward must be a common morality that appeals not to racial difference, but to the best in what we can be by the Spirit, working through the Word. Our identity, our strength, our power must come from our character and ultimately from Christ. He says this is not a Pollyannish plea for all of us just to forgive and forget, but it is a plea for the Gospel to occupy the center of any Christian conversation about race. Not just the Gospel for others. Yes, that of course but the gospel for ourselves too, the gospel that searches, the gospel that saves, the gospel that sanctifies. How might your participation and mine in our racial tensions be different different if we didn't instinctively prepare in every racial encounter for some combination of recrimination for guilt and reestablishment of righteousness? What if we encountered others not as a means to securing our identity, be that as a victim, as innocent, or as absolved? but as an opportunity to meet a whole person with our whole person. What if the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, while not the only thing we need to talk about, is the one thing that can make all the rest of our conversations meaningful, honest, and hopeful. If sin and guilt got us into this mess, perhaps justification by faith alone, through grace alone, can get us out. If you recognize and repent and rejoice, All three of those things are required if Jesus is going to be king of the hill. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning acknowledging this is a hard thing. This is a difficult topic. But one that is necessary for us to go through if we're to move toward unity with our brothers and sisters. Father, I am not above this sin. I thank You that though my past was laced with looking down on my black brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God, that God, You've brought freedom and forgiveness. Father, it breaks my heart to know that generations of churches in our nation were taught the inferiority of one race and the superiority of another. And that pastors and theologians tried to root that reality in a misinterpretation of Your Word that would serve their purposes. Father, wherever there is a corrosive legacy of that in our lives, help us to see it. Help us to repent of it. And help us to surrender the hill to Jesus. Rejoice in His supremacy.